This is the fifth in a series of talks by Joel titled The Practice of Inquiry 5, Are You Emotions? Recorded October 17, 2006 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Yesterday we said that most people, in this culture anyway, think that they are a body, they think that they are emotions, they think that they are thoughts, and they think that they are some center of self-will, an ego or a soul or something like that. And yesterday in the morning we looked to see if we could actually find a body, and I don't think anybody actually found an inherently existing body, although 90% of you I'm sure are convinced it's still there, but I don't think you actually found it. And in the afternoon, we thought, okay, well, let's forget about whether there's an inherently existing body or not. We do know there are phenomena that we call body, all these sensations, and then some sounds and sights associated with it. So we went to uh, look to see if those could be us. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe we're just a collection of this stuff. So what was the result of your investigation? No, they just come and go. They come and go, yes. In fact, let's just take a moment to consider that every single sensation that you experienced yesterday is absolutely gone now. Right? Is that true? There seems to be one um, sensation that's, that's different than everything else that really does come out. There's a sense of... Um, solidity, kind of in the trunk. And it's not always the same, but it's there's something that seems to be there all the time. Different than, you know, the things that go through your hands or the itches or pains or whatever they are. But I was noticing when I was hungry, when I was laying down or walking around or whatever, that sense of trunk solidity is there. Was it there all through the night? Apparently. What do you mean, apparently? <laughs> ah, that's the mind. That's a thought. Now, see? No. We want to be able to distinguish. Right. Yes. No, it wasn't there no. when I was Okay. Uh, so it's impermanent. Yeah. This is very important because the mind backtracks. It fills in the past that it can't account for. So it says... Well, I woke up this morning, and I still have this feeling of the solidity in the trunk, and I had it when I went to sleep last night, so it must have been there all night. But that's a thought, which is also impermanent. Anybody else find uh, anything interesting about this? Yes, Camilla. Well, I noticed... A couple of things. First of all, I noticed uh, how phobic the mind is to allowing direct experience of things. Um, but second, I was noticing this morning, like even though I can't find a body, there are certain correlations in things that you do, like every morning I do a series of exercises, which appear to make it more likely that I'm going to be able to sit for the rest of the day. Uh, and when I don't do that, that series of exercises, it's less likely that I'm going to be able to sit in. I do the same thing. I do stretching every morning, yeah. and I notice the same 
Uh, or let me put this, it appears I notice the correlations, but I draw the same correlations. But I'm also completely prepared for the day that I get up and do these exercises and it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. Because by the end of the day, the body will be in rigor mortis. No matter how much hatha yoga I've done. Do you know what I mean? So, at some point, the correlation isn't going to work. My mind might be, you know, trying to correlate it, but it'll be disappointing. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> so, again, you bring up this point that we're not trying to get rid of language, we're not trying to get rid of concepts, we're not trying to get rid of ideas and these correlations. They're very, very useful. But we are trying to see their true nature. That's all we're trying to do. Okay, well, if you are not sure whether you are or are not your body, or whether there's a body there at all, then you know how to continue to make an inquiry about this. So keep going, keep inquiring. This morning though, and today, the rest of the day, we are going to move on to making an inquiry about our emotions. Another component of who most people think they are. And as with phenomena, the fact that emotions arise is not the problem. Remember I read you the Buddhist Ashvagosha in the beginning and he said the fact that phenomena arise is not the problem. The problem is that we superimpose on the phenomena false imaginations. And in a similar way, we superimpose upon emotions a false imagination and specifically under delusion, we superimpose on emotions the identification that the emotion belongs to me. And that causes the emotion to be an afflicted emotion, as the Buddhists talk about it, and as we would say, a self-centered emotion. Uh, sometimes this is made clear in the teachings. Now here's a good example. Anandamoyama says, it is personal desire that is the very cause of suffering. So she's qualified the word desire with personal, self-centered, so that you know it's not just all desires. Sometimes it's not clear in the teaching. In fact, probably more often than not, it's not clear. And again, because, you know, it's cumbersome to spell all these things out in all this detail, and especially when you're reading 50 little, you know, sayings, it's like a shorthand. So here's one from the Dhammapada, which is a Buddhist text, and this is the Buddhist speaking, and he says, make headway against the current with your energy. Scrupulously avoid desire, O noble one. So that makes it sound like you should avoid any kind of desire at all. In this case, and very often when we're reading in English, the problem is the imprecision of the translation. So, for instance, the Dhammapada is written in the Pali language. And in the Pali language, thus I've heard, the word desire is T-A-N-H-A, tanha. And according to Houston Smith, that great scholar of comparative religions, tanha does not mean all desire. Emphatically, it does not mean all desire. It only means desire for self-gratification. It does not mean desire for liberation, and it does not mean desire to help other beings. 
So when the translator translated that, they picked the word desire that is, you know, a very general word in English, but the original meaning is not that. And this is important because some seekers do interpret it that I have to get rid of all desire, and they go to work suppressing all their emotions, and, you know, they're killing the motivation for the spiritual path. To walk a spiritual path, you've got to have a passion either for truth or a longing for the divine, or something in between or combination or whatnot. Otherwise, you know what? You never dare cut the rope and be free, as Zorba says. So it's not about getting rid of emotion, but it is about not being a slave to self-centered emotions. So we have to be very careful of that. The other reason we don't want to suppress emotion is that afflicted emotions transmute into wisdom energies when they are liberated from this delusion that they belong to some self. And you can't actually get rid of emotions. You can suppress them, but you can't actually get rid of them. But if you could get rid of them, you would be getting rid of all the wisdom energies. Clarity, compassion, all accomplishing wisdom, uh, the wisdom of equanimity, all the values that we are striving to realize through our practice. So it's very important that we are not about getting rid of our emotions. It's very important that emotions are not the problem. But emotions experienced under the delusion of self are very much of a problem. They're a tremendous cause of suffering for ourselves and for others. And they're key in keeping this whole delusion going, perpetuating it. So when we misidentify with the body-mind, and now see body-mind I'm using in this conventional sense, because when we go look in the body-mind, we don't find any body, and if you go look, you won't find any mind either. But when we identify myself with this particular body-mind, I identify with these energies, which we call then emotions. And then we can again divide up emotions into two fundamental categories. They range uh, from what we might call very simple biological energies that we're familiar with, you know, like hunger, sex, thirst, fatigue, to very complex feelings, which is normally what we mean by emotion, pride, jealousy, things like that. Uh, whether they are simple or complex, however, emotion is the energy that fuels the story of I and the whole delusion of self. That's what drives it, as we said. Will I get what I want and avoid what I don't want? And because of this, not only do we divide the world up between me and the world and all that, but we begin to divide the whole world up into two fundamental categories, what's good and what's bad for me, what I like and what I don't like. So the whole world, then we start to see in another dualistic way, superimposed upon those very primitive distinctions we make. This is why Zen master Huang Po says, 
Every one of the sentient beings bound to the wheel of alternating life and death is recreated from the karma of his own desires. So this this whole idea that this is what drives our karma and keeps us uh, stuck on the treadmill of samsara. And I got a very good illustration of this from my Tibetan teacher in Los Angeles uh, years ago. So I'm just going to impart this story to you. Some of you have heard it already, but it is a wonderful illustration of how this works. I was studying with this teacher with another group of students in someone's house, and we would uh, come in through a hallway, and then we'd go into the living room, and they had the you know table pushed aside and cushions on the floor, and we'd sit and meditate. And he would not give a very many or elaborate teachings. It was primarily for practice, practice, practice. But every once in a while he'd give a little teaching or somebody would ask a question and he'd elaborate beyond just the meditation instructions. And in this house they had in the hallway hanging a beautiful big Tibetan tanka. Tanka is a painting, a religious painting, spiritual painting. So someone asked him about this tanka hanging in the hallway. And so he launched into a whole explanation of it. It's the wheel of time, and it depicts the whole cosmos. And the whole cosmos is a a big disc, and it's being held in the mouth and hands of a demon, the demon Mara, the god of delusion. So this is a map of delusion, basically. And I don't remember all the details of it, but some of the things they have, like on the outer rim of this map uh, circle, those concentric circles on the outer circle were depicted the six states of being. So there's the hell realms, the hungry ghost realms, animal realm, human realm, uh, the two god realms, and stuff like that. So they go around. And then there's some other things, Buddha families, and the Buddhas and the Dakinis and each of the families. And then uh, in another inner circle is the um, twelve conditioned arisings. And this is another Buddhist concept. And it's really sort of a specific description of how delusion works, that everything is dependent on everything else, and it's circular. And then, I don't know, there are more dakinis and whatever in there. Uh, And then at the very center, at the very center, in the bullseye, there are three little figures. There's a rooster, and there's a snake, and there's a pig. And the rooster is biting the tail of the snake, and the snake is biting the tail of the pig, and the pig is biting the tail of the rooster. So they're sort of going around like this. And so then our teacher said, the rooster stands for desire, self-centered desire. The snake stands for aversion. And the pig stands for indifference. And these three states of energy, if we like to put it that way, are what drive all of samsara. They turn the wheel of samsara. That's the fuel. Just like you need fuel for your car, that's the fuel that turns the wheel. So it's key, it's key here to get to know what is going on and what is the nature of desire, aversion, and Indifference. And then he said, you can observe this in your life. Just, you know, watch during the day. What motivates you during the day? Desire, aversion, desire, aversion, desire, aversion. Oh, at the end of the day, you're, you're indifferent to it all. You just want to go to sleep. 
But then he said an interesting thing. He said, and you can see it in every moment of your meditation. And we sat down to meditate, and sure enough, you sit down with a little desire. Oh, goody, I'm going to get enlightened today. You know, this is, might be the day, right? And you sit there and you meditate a little bit. And at first it's going, you know, fine. And then the thoughts come and you're being distracted. And then there's aversion. Don't like that. And then try it. Try a little harder. No, maybe I should relax. This is exciting. No, it's just lots of up. Oh, then you get to a point where actually it gets kind of clear. And, oh, this is lovely. This I really want. This, oh, now I'm getting it. This goes along for a while, and then that pain, oh no, that's coming, oh no, oh no, that pain in my knee, oh God, I'm never going to make it through the whole thing. Uh, now there's aversion, right? Am I giving you a good description? Back and forth, back and forth, and then at some point, especially by the afternoon or the night, you don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> that's the pain. So you see there, there's the rooster, there's the snake, and there's the pig manifesting right there. So, this morning, uh, we're going to look at just the three simple states of emotion here. The desire, the aversion, and the indifference. Primarily desire and aversion. We don't usually think of it in our cultures indifference as being a kind of energy, but they think of it as a kind of sluggishness. And what we want to do now for the next two rounds of meditation is identify whatever desires or aversion or if you identify indifference, that's good too. But identify particularly desire and aversion as it arises in your meditation. And the first one, I'm going to actually evoke it. I'm going to give you guidance to evoke them. But then the second one, you're just going to see what naturally arises. But then notice that the desires and aversions are impermanent. And then you want to ask the same question of yourself that we've been asking in terms of bodily sensations and bodily phenomena. Well, this desire arises and it passes away, but do I arise and pass away? Am I really this desire? Same thing with aversion. Okay? So as I said, in the first round I'm going to give you some situations hopefully to help you look at this and then we will proceed from there. Here we go. So let's begin by concentrating on our meditation object to stabilize attention.
Now call to mind an image or a memory of some particular food you really like. You can close your eyes for this if you want. Make it as vivid as possible and generate a strong desire for it. See if you can get your mouth salivating. Now allow the image or memory to self-liberate. And allow the desire to dissolve completely away. Even though the desire is gone, are you the one who experienced the desire gone? If not, how can you be the desire? Now call to mind an image or memory of some food you particularly dislike. Imagine it as vividly as possible and generate a strong repulsion for it.
Now allow the image or memory to self-liberate. And allow the repulsion to dissolve completely away. Even though the repulsion is completely gone, are you the one who experienced the repulsion gone? If not, how then can you be the repulsion? Open your eyes. Rest in spacious awareness. And observe whatever desires or aversions arise naturally. And observe their impermanence. How they come and how they go. and conduct this inquiry. These desires and aversions come and go, but do I, the one who experiences them, come and go? If not, how can I be these desires? and diversions. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
let's just take a moment to see what your inquiry produced in our last meditation and at lunchtime. Yes, Maura. Well, that lunch was so delicious for me <laughs> that I couldn't find anything that I didn't like. And so I even tried eating the skin on the squash. <laughs> but it wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't good, but it had it. So the only, what I had to end up doing in the end was um, not eating the rest of my lunch. Oh! Aversion to that idea. Okay, was that an aversion or did it just stoke the flames of desire? Uh, okay, good. There you go. That's that's clear cut aversion. Interesting, because that's an aversion to an idea. We were talking about aversion to getting something or being in some other concrete situation. But yes, we can have desire and aversion for ideas, which is very interesting. The other thing is that's a good example for everybody is when you run into a problem, a brick wall, then you get inventive. And that's customized in the practice. I give you the general rules and you have to take them and customize them to your situation. So, thank you. Yes? So, when you, when you do start feeling this way, which I have the same type of thing going on, um, what do you do? I mean, like, I find myself thinking, you know, I, my, my mind plays at the same thing about, like, you know, a flash before what, a little, a little flash in a situation of, oh yeah, I'm going to save this, that'll be really funny, or, you know, whatever. That, typically that's, you know, I like to be funny, okay? To be what? Try, try to be funny. Uh-huh, right. That's a big deal for this personnel. So, but lately I've been feeling like, you know, just don't even bother. <laughs> I'm sick of you and your stupid funny stuff. You know, and it's just like really. So, so what do you do? Do you just? It's hard sometimes. Yeah. You know, of course, because the urge is still there. Boy, I'm to save this. Oh, that would be perfect. But it's like, don't do it. And so, is that what you do? You just keep stopping yourself. No. Uh, well, in the beginning, it's very good to keep stopping yourself because the more you act on it the more you dissipate the insight that you're building about the true nature of this. So we keep acting on it, and then we keep the wheels going. We want to be funny. We want everybody to laugh. We want them to think that we're witty and brilliant. We're funny. They laugh. We think we're witty and brilliant. And then, you know, we do it again and do it again. So that's very important to do in the beginning. But then you want to experiment. And this is the next step in watching desire and aversion. And let me ask if any of you have already noticed this that not only are the desires and the aversions impermanent, but the gratification is impermanent. Or the sense of repulsion, the disgust that we feel if it's an aversion, is impermanent. So you can then become experimental about it. When you're feeling torn, one side saying, why bother saying your stupid joke again, and yeah, everybody's going to laugh, and then you're going to feel good, and but so what? Then... Try it and see what happens. But do it mindfully. So then you do say something uh, witty and then everybody laughs and then you feel good. And how long does that last? Five minutes, ten minutes before it wears off. And then you have to do it again. 
So not only is the desire impermanent, but the recognition that you get is impermanent as well. And you can try that with a lot of things. Uh, And that's a wonderful way then to cultivate this inner renunciation. It's seeing the unsatisfactory nature of this whole deluded way of living. It's just never going to bring you final, ultimate satisfaction. So we're continuing to develop this this inner renunciation. But it comes out of our experience. We don't decide, I'm going to become an inner renunciate. Just, just the way you're describing. That's how it unfolds. Did you wave your hand just a little? Yeah. While we're doing the meditation, aversion, a lot of aversion, and that just continued. When we went down to lunch, and I saw what was for lunch, and uh, I saw that zucchini there, and I just went, oh, jeez. A lot of aversion. And so I looked at it, and I thought, well... I'll try it. What the heck? So, you know, I just got my plate. I just put a piece of that on there. I, just a half a piece, but I thought, I'm just going to try it. So I just took that, and I sat down, and I just ate that. And it was okay. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't bad. But it was just turned in from aversion just to indifference, right. basically. So then I just had indifference for a long time. I just went and got the rest of my meal and ate, and was just like, whatever. And I went and I laid down and just more indifference, you know, just watching indifference just be there. And it just was there, came in here, I sat down, we were doing everything, and I was just like, well, kind of like, why am I here, you know, indifference. And then all of a sudden, it was just gone. Ah, you caught the moment when it left? Yeah. Okay, see, wonderful, great. So you're not indifference either. Right. There's some people who think I'm just indifferent to life. And that state can last, you know, we can go through long periods of time where we're just indifferent to everything, nothing moves us, and we start to think that's who we are. But, again, impermanent. Yeah. Uh, two surprising things. Um, desire and aversion both have a little resistance underneath a little energy, kind of like electricity. And um, and that makes a movement away for both of them. And what was surprising is that I noticed, uh, I'm not sure about this, but it seems that the desire and aversion are created to not be still or to stay. To what? To stay. Just to be. So, whether it's, I need an apple, I need to shift, or, you know, it's always a movement away from center. And it's, it's just like a little electrical kind of resistance. Various to. It's always a movement away from what is. It's a movement carrying us into the future. The trouble is there is no future. So it's a movement carrying us into imagination. And it's a movement carrying us away from now. And this is why enlightenment, realization, gnosis always happens in a moment, not only when there's no thought, but when there's no desire or aversion. Because in that In that moment, when there's no desire and there's no aversion, 
then the whole wheel of samsara stops and dissolves, vanishes. Because it's being driven by desire and aversion. See? So, it shows that you are, at some level, beginning to see the import of desire and aversion and what it does, and then that raises the possibility of what would happen if it wasn't doing what it does. And that's what rouses the fear. Okay, so we're going to move on now to more complex, quote, psychological emotions, unquote. But keep in mind that as we continue here, you're still going to have opportunities to watch biological desire and aversion, as we're calling it, very primitive desires and aversions. And particularly around food is a wonderful place to observe it. And try and see all the ramifications of the impermanence. That the desire and aversion, they're impermanent. The gratification or the repulsion, that's impermanent. In there, in that whole cycle of energies, there's nothing to hang on to in there. Nothing lasts. Nothing stays around. And you really want to start to be able to experience that. So just continue to be mindful as we go. Okay, so the way I'm using emotions here, they are involve needs that aren't just based on physical needs. So they're very often based on what we call social needs. You know, the need to belong, need for admiration or recognition, need for companionship, those sorts of things. So these are very complex, or more complex than the primitive hunger and thirst and things like that. So just to get a sense of what we're talking about. And then we usually divide emotions up into two categories, the way we divide the rest of the world up. We call them positive or negative emotions. So we have things like joy as a positive emotion, anger as a negative emotion, fear as a negative emotion. You notice actually a lot of the emotions fall on the negative side. Contentment is a positive emotion, like peace, uh, excitement. And then we want to experience the positive emotions because they make us feel good and we want to avoid the negative emotions because they make us feel bad. So we have here a situation where we desire, which is the root of emotion, the emotion. Or we are averse to an emotion. But what we are interested in here is no matter what emotion we're experiencing, and no matter how complex, what we're interested in here is trying to find out, is this emotion me? Is it one of the components of who I am? So there are other practices that work with transmuting afflicted emotions into wisdom energies and so forth. We're not going to be doing that on this retreat. Our task here is just to inquire in this one question. Whatever emotion I happen to be feeling now, is this me? Is this who I am, or part of who I am? That's what we're going to check out. We'll do one round of a guided meditation. We'll check in and see how that went, and then that's what we'll be doing the rest of the afternoon. Okay? Here we go.
So we'll begin by concentrating on our meditation object in order to stabilize attention. Now close your eyes and recall memory of some person or incident that made you very angry. Remember it as vividly as possible and generate a strong feeling of anger. Now allow the memory of that person or incident to self-liberate. And allow the anger to dissolve completely.
open your eyes. Rest in spacious awareness. And notice that although the anger is gone, you, the experiencer of that anger, are still here. How can you be the emotion of anger? your eyes and call to mind a memory of a person or incident that caused you great joy. Remember it as vividly as possible and generate a strong feeling of joy. Now allow the memory of the person or incident to self-liberate. Allow the joy to dissolve completely.
open your eyes and rest in spacious awareness. noticed that although the joy is gone, you, the experiencer, are not. How then can you be the joy? So what was your experience with this part of the inquiry? Yes. Uh, I picked something, the anger thing, that really made me angry. And I, I really experienced being angry. I didn't, it was the most recent really angry thing I could think of. Right. And I was angry for about two days of the numb, the numb lacking things. Um, and I'm just amazed I couldn't get, I thought that would get me angry again. Okay, well, that's a wonderful still um, experiment to show the impermanence of the emotion, that something was so strong, where is it now? So you can't be that emotion. It's interesting because people really do identify with chronic emotions that they have. We talked about this earlier, you know, that I'm an angry person, and we go to therapy to find out why I'm such an angry person and all that. Uh, but if we really pay attention and look, we see that we're an angry person because we keep it going. We go around banging things in the house and all that. And when we stop doing that, it goes. It goes completely, without a trace. 
then who are we? This is what scares a lot of people, so they have to go around banging things again and you know, get to a, another situation where they can get angry and keep that emotion going. Any kind of emotion at some point, you know, just to let you know you're there. Because if <laughs> you're not feeling anything, well, who could you possibly be? Who's waving their hand down there? Is that Bill? Yeah. I, I've grown up some real strong emotions. And uh, what really was so amazing was that once... You know, the emotion was there, really strong, but just when just allowing it to self-liberate, it just left. And there's just nothing there. Just amazing. And note that what really amazing too was, you know, the seemed like stronger the emotion when it did go, then there was a more inner peace this to a peace people called it. Inner this deep, deeper. Mm. The stronger the emotion, the more the inner peace could it. Interesting. Interesting. The Tibetans talk about when we liberate thoughts, the more highly charged the thought, when it gets liberated, the clearer the spacious awareness is. And highly charged is emotionally charged. So it's almost like a kind of energy that's caught up in the thought, and when it gets liberated, it goes back into the awareness and makes it more luminous, brighter. Yeah. I noticed with anger, it took a long time, longer to dissipate when you said whatever you said, you know, now just rest in spacious awareness. The energy was still there. It was kind of, it was a relief to let it go. Conversely, with the joy, um, there was, there was sadness in letting go of the joy so that at some point in letting go of it, um, it's like I spaced out on some little train of thought as if to kind of escape the emptiness of having let go of the joy. <laughs> and then clarity came just like right before you rang the bell. But uh, there was a little just tripping out there for a minute. Well, that's interesting how thought and emotions play together. So if I can't be the joy here, it's fading away, then I'll latch onto a train of thought. I'll fill the gap with that, right? Then if a big emotion comes, it's really strong, I can drop the train of thought maybe and just sit with that emotion and steam and burn because that's what I am. Do you know what I mean? But still, our main thing is here, what is the reference to this word I? That we use all the time. All the time. So anyway, that's the focus. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the afternoon solo. For a lot of people, it's much easier to uh, have emotions when you're not in a room full of people stuck in a chair, you know, watching your breath. And to get emotions going, you can give your mind a little bit more free reign and let it get involved in stories. Because that's how you'll be able to work up a lot of emotion for most people. So in this part of the uh, inquiry, it's a, a sort of paradoxical. We want to have the stories going. We want to get the benefit of the emotion. But we also want to be able to step in mindfully and then see how it goes. And then see, well, have I gone anywhere? 
We want that contrast, just what Mary was talking about. He's so emotional, and then it's gone. So what's left of me now that the emotion's gone? Oh, a thought, a little bridge of thought comes. Okay, that's gone. Now what's left of me, do you know? We're trying to see what is underneath all this phenomena that's arising and passing and rising and passing away, if anything. Okay. Oh, yeah? A uh, clarifying question, because um, I've been dealing with this practically since I got into this time, is this, you know, what I call nauseating feeling of seeing my story come up and all this, you know, emotion about it. And so, then if I... What, what did you describe? What kind of feeling? Nauseating. Oh, nauseating, yes. Disgusting. Yes, right. And abhorrent. <laughs> uh, Good. So, uh, I've been doing this a lot even before you know it was suggested as a procedure. But um, having you know seen it and say, "Oh, here it is again," uh, what ha- seems to happen is a secondary layer. Then of you know, there's an emotion about having the emotion. Yes, he was had sorrow about the joy going. So I'm just uh, clarifying is the assignment then is to to see that and see if I'm that as well. To just keep stepping back with my seeing and let this stuff slip over. Yes, wherever this inquiry takes you, I don't want to put boundaries on the inquiry, but. The important thing is not so much the content of the emotion, but the fact the emotion's there and then it's not there. And then an emotion is there and then it's not there. So if you get into all the details of the complexity of how these psychological emotions are built, you're not going to have the spaciousness to actually see them arise and pass away. So that's what we're focusing on. It doesn't really matter if it's a positive emotion, a negative emotion, a complex emotion, a simple emotion, a down to a little desire. We're still watching desires and aversions, whatever it is. But the question is, is it me? That's really the question. Who cares what it is if it ain't me? So let's find out if it's me. Then you can get all concerned about how it's all put together. Also, I say one other thing. You're getting this reaction of being disgusted and nauseated by it. But I tell you, if you don't have it going, you'll never have insight into its true nature. So uh, you might then leave the nauseating feeling there, because that's good emotion to watch, but step back and become curious about it, rather than reject it. Because that's your teacher showing you the true nature of what's going on. But you don't want to look at it, because you're disgusted with it. Okay. Okay. That was really my question was... How else are you going to find out what's going on unless you look at it? If it goes away, you'll never know. You'll be at peace, but you'll never know what it was all about, Alfie. (laughs) All right, so we will break, and uh, we will not get together again until the evening session at 7.30. And remember, constancy of practice So even when you go and stretch out on the couch and have some tea, you're watching those desires, those aversions, you let your mind wander off, it drifts back to that horrible incident that made you so angry, or it drifts 
uh, into the future when you're going to be going to Hawaii over Christmas and how great it's going to be to have some sun again or whatever is going on, you know, use it in your practice. Just turn it back into your inquiry. Okay. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.